morning. Uh, important but tough text this morning, so let's get right into it. Genesis chapter 19. Now please turn there in your Bibles. Genesis 19. Maybe not the text that I would have chosen um, for my first sermon back, but the text that we have before us in God's providence. We have been in Genesis 18 and 19 for a while now, and we began last time, a while ago, to try and unpack the infamous story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're always asking the question, seeking to answer, why is this story here? If we believe that this is all God's word and is able to make you wise for salvation, that it's living and active, that it's profitable, well, what about this story? Why does God do this? And then why does he record this for us and want us thus to then know this? That's what I hope to help you begin to understand this morning. Uh, We have been looking a lot lately at the judgment of God, which I'm thankful for because it's not something that many of us often consider. And it's especially not something that the American evangelical church often considers. But it's fundamental to the story. It's fundamental to the gospel. We're in the book of Revelation in Bible study. Revelation is all about uh, God's final and terrible coming judgment and the salvation of his people. And here we are in Genesis 19, which is a terrible foreshadowing of that final and terrible judgment. Genesis 19 is about the judgment of God. And we've been saying that Genesis 18 and Genesis 19 go together. And we saw a long time ago that Genesis 18 is about the justice of God. Again, a concept that people are very confused about these days. But following that great chapter on the justice of God, uh, we then hit this great chapter on the judgment of God. And the point is that what we see God do here in chapter 19 is justice as defined in chapter 18 as God gives the Sodomites what is their due in light of their great wickedness. That's that's justice. So we've established that God is holy. Since God is holy, God is righteous. He is right. He is and acts in perfect accord with his perfect standard, which is himself. He is righteous, and so he always acts rightly. God always and only acts justly, always acting in accordance with his perfect justice. Remember, we kind of define that a couple of times. That just means that God gives everyone exactly what they are due, what they deserve based upon their actions. Proverbs 24, 12, will he not repay man according to his works? That's justice. God treats everyone equitably and fairly. He rights all wrongs. He judges evil. All right, so we're sort of all right with that idea for, for certain things. Right? We see racial injustice, and we are good with the idea of God's judgment. We see child abuse. We see the sexual exploitation of women. We see murder, and we are good with the idea of God's judgment when it comes to these things. We're good with it as long as we are against the thing that God's wrath is against. But what happens when that wrath is directed against maybe the cultural idol of our day? What happens when God's wrath is directed against something that we affirm? Maybe something we do. Maybe something we claim that we are. What happens when God's wrath is poured out against the sin of homosexuality? Because that's what's happening in Genesis 19. We looked at judgment in general last time to try and understand why God does and must judge sin, why it is good 
for God to judge sin. Uh, sin is evil. It's bad. A good God must judge evil. Why it is justice for God to judge sin. What we're seeing now is that that includes the sin of homosexuality. So an important question today is, is well, are, you, are you comfortable with that idea? Uh, Christian, if you identify yourself as a Christian, do you agree with what we're going to see in God's word that homosexuality is a sin? Do you understand why it's a sin? Can you explain that from Scripture? Christian, do you agree that unrepentant homosexuality, like any other unrepentant sin, results in hell? Are some of you starting to squirm and uncomfortable that I'm even saying such things? Yeah, well, let's see what God's word says. Here's our first, here's our proposition. God's word is our authority. That's it. What God's word affirms, we must affirm. So what does this text and the rest of God's word teach us about homosexuality? So we're going to take a whole sermon on this uh, because I just think it's an important and timely text. Uh, this won't be my most expositional of sermons. We're basically going to look at verses 4 and 5 and kind of use them as a stepping off point to seek to understand kind of generally what God's word teaches about homosexuality. This is not something we talk about a lot. This is not something I enjoy talking about. This is one of those sermons that someone's going to pull up in a couple years and bring out against me to prove that, you know, I'm a bigot or something. But it's in the text, and so we have to deal with it. Our goal is always for our thinking to align with God's thinking, and we find God's thinking in his word. Our goal is to love what God loves and hate what God hates because he's perfect and so our goal is for us to be for what God is for and against what God is against. And so where does homosexuality fall in there? Well, let's see. I think we're actually going to probably take uh, two weeks to talk about this because the church is so increasingly confused about this. This is why I want to take some time here. Um, I want to explain to you why this thing that for some of us is so obvious, for some of us we're not so sure. I want to take some time to look at it together. Why? Uh, Carl Truman, a historian I like to read, he wrote a great article in response um, back in June to the, remember the Supreme Court ruling uh, Bostock, which declared that, that sexual orientation and gender identity are included in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, but that's not the point uh, to talk about the ruling. Um, here's what Truman writes in response uh, to that ruling. He says, the shock and awe surrounding the Bostock ruling perhaps indicates that the old task of apologetics is now being oddly reversed. The pressing pastoral need of the hour for the church is not to first explain the faith to the world, but rather first to explain the world to the faithful. There's a great need right now for the world to be explained to us. Because I don't think we quite grab the significance of what is going on out there. I don't think we quite grab the significance of the increasingly aggressive push to normalize and celebrate that which is so clearly abnormal and condemned in Scripture. And I, that's honestly, I don't think you all necessarily even agree that homosexuality is a sin. And well, maybe it is, but kind of if, if it is, but is it really that big of a deal? Well, let's see. We're going to simply, I'm going to try to accomplish two things. In two weeks. All I want to do today is simply demonstrate to you clearly from God's word that homosexuality is a sin. God's word is clear. I want to read it and I want to hope that God will convince us of the truth and the goodness of that world, uh, word even when it comes to this. Then next week I want to come back and try and show you why homosexuality is a sin. I want us to step back and look at the goodness and glory of God's creation 
and then at the grace and goal of God's covenant, and then see why, in light of creation and covenant, which Genesis is all about, homosexuality is a particularly egregious sin. So this week is simply that it is a sin. Next week, why it is a sin. I really hope you're listening this morning. Some of you have already probably tuned me out. Uh, Give God's word a chance. Don't just shut it out because it's condemning that which our culture celebrates. Don't shut it out because this is such an unpopular, this is maybe like the second least popular position that we could take right now. Um, Don't just tune this out because you disagree or it makes you angry or you have friends or loved ones or people you care about who identify as gay or because you yourself experience same-sex attraction. No, here's the question. Is God's word true? It's that simple. Is God's word true? Is God's way right? If this text and the whole of Scripture clearly affirms the sinfulness of homosexuality, the brothers and sisters, this is desperately important. If the wages of sin is death, and God's word says that homosexuality is a sin, then we help no one by soft-pedaling this. Uh, We help no one by leaving them in their sin. Uh, We help no one by affirming and encouraging them in their sin. That would be the most hateful thing that we could do. Hey, you know, the Bible says this thing that you're doing leads to death. I don't care enough about, about you to tell you that the Bible says that this thing you're doing leads to death. God forbid. We best love our neighbors by compassionately but boldly telling them the truth about God, about man, about sin, and about Christ. And Genesis 19 contains a heavy truth, but a timely and eternally important truth. God hates all evil and wickedness. All sin is evil and wickedness. And Scripture clearly includes homosexuality in the, as a sin. Therefore, it is evil and wickedness. Genesis 19 shows us very clearly what God thinks. So we've got to face this. Uh, we have to see the bad news. Oh, but take heart because the gospel is great news uh, for the sexual sinner. And we are all of us sexual sinners in some form or fashion. And so for all of us, whatever shape your sexual sin takes, your only hope is Jesus Christ. Your only hope is to turn from that sin and trust in him. But we find ourselves in a culture that especially celebrates and encourages this, this one particular variety of sexual sin. So we got to talk about it. Christians cannot celebrate what God condemns. So let's see what God condemns here and why. Look at Genesis 19. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 11 for you. We've read them already before. I'm going to read them again. We're going to come back. Don't worry. In two weeks, we're going to look at the rest of the text and focus on Lot and his sin and a lot of different things going on with him in a couple of weeks. So we'll get to the rest of the text. But first, let me read for you Genesis 19, verses 1 through 11. Pay attention because this is God's word and this is what God wants to say to you today. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, 
that we may know them. Lot went out to the man at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. I'll stop there. If you would bow with me. Let's begin uh, this time with, with a word of prayer. Father, help us. Now we pray. Help the preaching of your word. Help the hearing of your word. Father, some of us desperately do not want to hear these words. Um, Our world desperately hates these words. So, Father, I pray that you would help me um, speak clearly and truthfully and boldly. But, Father, help me to strike the right balance. Help me to speak humbly. Father, help me to recognize my own sin um, that can only be forgiven uh, by Jesus Christ. Father, help me to um, call everyone to repentance and faith, for we are all of us sinners. Father, we do find ourselves in a particularly difficult time uh, where our culture so clearly loves and affirms this one thing uh, that your word so clearly condemns. So, Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would use your word uh, to teach us and to instruct us. Father, shape and and conform our minds um, to your word. I pray that we would, all of us, um, desire to be submissive to your word. Father, help us. Father, please help me now um, in the preaching of your word. I pray that you would be honored and glorified. Father, I pray that we would see the sinfulness of sin and the great beauty and glory of your mercy and your grace. Father, we ask your help and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so on Thursday night, we were looking at the final judgment from Revelation chapter 11. There are multiple glimpses of that final judgment throughout the book of Revelation. Remember, I'm trying to teach Revelation, not as a chronology, it's, it's here's what happens at the very end from beginning to end, but it's a series of cycles that's looking at different perspectives and different, giving different principles of what the whole period between Christ's ascension and Christ's return is going to be like. And so the final judgment in the book of Revelation is narrated multiple times, and again in more detail in Revelation chapter 20. And right after that, then comes the new heavens and the new earth in 21. That's the kingdom. God himself come to live with his people in his purified and perfected world. Then heaven will truly be a place on earth. He will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That sounds pretty good. I want to be there. And then it says, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's the kingdom. God himself coming to be with his people in his perfected and purified world. But then it goes on and God announces who will be part of that good and glorious kingdom and who will not. Listen to Revelation 21 verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolatries, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That sounds pretty terrible. I don't want to be there. That is the hell that is coming. 
And those are the hell um, who it is coming for. Those are who the hell is coming for. And so if that verse is true, and again, if God's word is true, then it is of the utmost important that we understand uh, what constitutes the sexually immoral. If homosexuality is included in sexual immorality, then it is a sin that must be repented of, forsaken, and forgiven. So is it? Genesis 19. Let's look at it. Uh, We're going to be dipping in and out and coming back and forth to this text and kind of the major texts on homosexuality in Scripture. So we'll be a little bit back and forth today. I introduced Genesis 19 a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to spend a ton of time in review. God has told Abraham back in chapter 18, verse 20, what he is going to do. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. Then there's this unique back and forth between God and Abraham, which is about establishing the justice of what God is about to do. 18 verse 25 is the main idea there. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's the main idea. God, who is judge, who is right and righteous, always does that which is right and righteous. So what does he do? So what he does in the destruction of Sodom must then be right and righteous. It is justice. It is a direct response to their great and very grave sin. Which is what? Look at verses 4 and 5. Remember, we've seen God's servants, God's angels. Uh, they come to the city to investigate. God's judgment is also always based upon evidence uh, on this um, investigation. Lot greets them at the gate. We'll give him much attention coming up. And then Lot rushes the angels into his home because Lot knows what Sodom is like. Verse 4, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. I noted the repetition last time. The text wants to make sure that you don't miss how comprehensive the wickedness of the city is. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. It gives us four repetitions emphasizing this comprehensiveness. Everyone is involved. Their sin is pervasive. And what is their sin? Verse 5, And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And we, we know what that means. I don't need to get into all the details. It's not complicated. And everyone has always known what this text means. Genesis 4.1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Same word. Adam knew his wife sexually. Uh, we know that's what no means there, and we know that's what no means here. But do also know that many today are trying to reinterpret this text, to try and make it fit the times, and to try and make it teach something which is actually the exact opposite of what it teaches. So, uh, so you know, some of the critics will say, hey, listen, you know, of course, that, that no can be a reference to sex, but it can also just mean to know, as in to get to know someone. So they'll say that this has nothing then to do with the sin of homosexuality. This isn't about um, homosexual gang rape. It's about hospitality. And then they will turn you to Ezekiel chapter 16. So let's, let's turn there. Let's make sure we understand how people deal with this text. Ezekiel chapter 16, page 703. What really is the sin of Sodom? That's what we're trying to establish. Look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, page 703. Ezekiel 16, 49. This is God speaking here. God says, Behold, 
This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Oh, here it is. Perfect. Oh, what's the sin? Tell us, Lord. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Boom. Case closed. And the sin of Sodom, the critics will say, has nothing to do with homosexuality. God himself in Ezekiel uh, 16 says it's pride, it's prosperity, it's oppression, and then they will quickly close the Bible and hope that you don't keep reading. Keep reading. Verse 50. Look at verse 50. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So verse 49, we have Sodom was proud. It demonstrated that pride in various different ways. Then verse 50, she was haughty, that proud, same thing. All those previous things mentioned, and she did an abomination. Well, what's, what's that? What, what's an abomination? Well, that word can have a range of meaning and use, but it also often has a very specific meaning. Let's listen to the law for a second. Let's see some of the spots where this same word Shows up. You can turn to Leviticus chapter 18 um, if you would like. I forgot to write down a page number uh, for that one. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So if you're back in Genesis, just to your right a little bit. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Here we find ourselves in the holiness code, um, the application uh, of God's moral law. Leviticus 18, 22 says this. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Same word. Look over just two chapters to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Same word. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So these two verses, which are clearly about homosexual behavior, both clearly condemn it as, same word, an abomination. Ezekiel 16, Sodom did an abomination, same word, same sin. And guys, as unpopular as it is, and again, as grating as I know that this sounds to your culturally conditioned ears, Scripture calls homosexuality an abomination. Just the fact that some, many of you are cringing by my use of that word, the Bible's word demonstrates how influenced we are by the world. Are you uncomfortable with the translation abomination? Okay, fine. Uh, the Hebrew word comes from the Hebrew verb to abhor. So alternate translations could be that a man lying with a man is an abhorrence, uh, something disgusting, something detestable, something loathsome. You know, I'm just reading from the Hebrew dictionary there. I'm taking the Hebrew word and reading its explanation from the Hebrew dictionary. This is the word that God uses um, to describe the sin of homosexuality. It is an abomination. Let's be very careful about trying to believe that our words are superior to God's words in his description of reality. And listen, guys, you don't even want me to say that because we've been conditioned to think that this is something unique and special and different that we've got to kind of handle with kid gloves, uh, that the church seems to be bending over backwards to try and qualify and apologize for and not hurt anyone's feelings by equivocating and basically saying, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. So, yeah, don't, don't really worry about it. Listen, of course, let's, let's be clear. We cannot and we should not be jerks. I do not be rude. Do not be the person who delights in calling out the sin 
of others. Right? The fruit of the Spirit apply. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. All of that applies, even in our calling of sin, sin. But I want you to consider the rest of the text uh, of Leviticus 20, verse 13, for a moment. Look there again if you're there. Leviticus 20, 13. That is page 99. I wrote it down there. Page 99. Leviticus 20, 13. Before the abomination of, of homosexual activity, look at verse 12. Right before it, God con- condemns incest. And then right after it, in verse 15, oh, God condemns bestiality. Can you imagine? It's a thought experiment. Can you imagine anyone speaking about incest and bestiality the way that we speak about homosexuality today? Soft peddling it. You know, talking about how, well, you know, well, maybe the behavior of incest and bestiality isn't so good, but hey, maybe you were born with an orientation to those things, so no big deal. Right? You can be an animal sex attracted to Christian. It's, it's really no different than any other sin, so don't worry too much about it. Maybe we should have some conferences about how the church can better support and encourage our family sex-attracted and animal sex-attracted brothers and sisters in Christ. No, right? that would be insane. Right? And we all recognize that that would be insane. And we all of us have no problem clearly condemning the sins of incest and bestiality and calling them for what they are and calling people to repentance The only difference between the three is that homosexuality is the one that our culture has been telling us for decades now is good and beautiful and to be celebrated. And it's giving you shows that you watch and that you love and that you think are entertaining and funny and cute that are actually just affirming and normalizing and showing you, hey, look how good uh, this thing is. And we have all of us been influenced by this. We've swallowed a damnable lie. But Scripture calls these things an abomination for a reason. And it puts homosexuality right there in the middle of them and doesn't distinguish between them. And with Ezekiel's use of that same word, abomination, to describe the sin of Sodom, the recent attempts to try and whitewash this text and say that it has nothing to do with homosexuality utterly fall apart. Was homosexuality the only sin of Sodom? Of course not. Well, that wouldn't make any sense. Uh, Sin rolls deep. Uh, Sin runs with a pack. Sin is never an isolated thing. There would have been great pride in Sodom. Uh, We'll see uh, the pride-homosexuality connection in a moment when we get back to Romans 1. Uh, There would have been all kinds of sin characterizing this twisted culture. But it is significant that God, in the inspiration of His Word, singles out the sin of homosexuality as a particularly illustrative and egregious example of Sodom's wickedness. The sin of Sodom is homosexuality, and there is no way around it. I could give you a number of books um, written by homosexual scholars who would deny any sort of badness with homosexuality, but then would come back and say, but yeah, listen, we cannot use God's word to defend our position at all because God's word is clear. Everything God's word says about this is against the practice of homosexuality. So look back at the text. Go back to Genesis 19 because Lot's response to the Sodomites' request confirms this. Look at verse 7 of Genesis 19. They have requested to know Lot's guests. Lot seeks to protect 
his guests and goes out to the Sodomites and says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Right, so what, whatever it is they want to do is wickedness. And Lot knows what they want to do. Verse 8. And guys, I hate verse 8. Verse 8 is horrible. I don't even want to talk about verse 8. We will come back to it in two weeks and address it. Lot does a terrible thing in verse 8. We will get to that. But for now, notice the word that he uses. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Same word as verse 5. The Sodomites want to know Lot's guests. Lot's daughters have not known any man. And there is no question about what this means. So again, we will get to Lot and his wicked sin. But for now, we have confirmed that the wickedness of Sodom, for which God is going to judge them by destroying them, is the sin of homosexuality. Maybe you're thinking, oh, hey, this is an Old Testament thing. That's, that's the law. We are not under law, but we are under grace. Well, Let's turn to the New Testament. Um, let's go there now. And I'm just running through the major texts for you, just simply trying to establish that Scripture's word is clear. I go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, page 955. I'll basically just read these first couple, and then we're going to spend some time in Romans chapter 1. Page 955, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. This is Paul writing. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's, that is the most serious thing. The kingdom is where God is. The kingdom is where life is. Thus, to not inherit the kingdom is to inherit death. And so Paul keeps going. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We don't have time to jump into the Greek there, but if you're reading along in the King James or the NASB, you'll notice that there are actually two Greek terms there that the ESV combines into the one men who practice homosexuality. The NASB translate these two words, the effeminate, that's a whole separate sermon, and homosexual, and then homosexual. So these are actually two different things. Well, we don't have time for that right now. But the point for now is that Paul could not be more clear. Those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's the same in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, page 990. You want to just go to your right a couple of pages, page 990, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Paul is writing about the law there, uh, which he, is, he says is laid down for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners. Well, who are those people? What does that include? Well, including verse 10, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Right, so Paul calls homosexuality lawlessness, disobedience. He calls it ungodly. He calls it sin. Then there is Jude verse 7. Page 1027. Keep going to your right. Moving quick, just demonstrating. God's word is clear. 1027, Jude, verse 7. This one's important for answering the claim that the sin of Sodom is not homosexuality. Well, what does God's word say? What does Jude say? Jude 7 says, Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. We'll see in Romans 1 what that is. Sexual immorality and unnatural desire, that's homosexuality. Jude says that is the sin of Saul. And so, so the New Testament is equally clear 
in its condemnation of homosexuality. We think the physical destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is horrible, and that it's bad. And yet, guys, we miss the worst promise that homosexuality will not and cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. Genesis 19 is stating the truth through narrative and through action. 1 Corinthians 6 and his New Testament text are stating the same truth in proposition. Old Testament and New Testament are in perfect agreement. Scripture is uniform and unequivocal in its total condemnation of homosexuality. I think we haven't even gotten to the most important text yet. It is an abominable corruption of God's good creation. Again, God's word. It's a particularly graphic picture of the foolishness of the sin that plagues all of us. And again, the text doesn't want you to miss this. Uh, there is a reason why God picks this sin at this time to illustrate the judgment that all sin demands. That's what I'm going to attempt to unpack for you clearly next week. This is not random or haphazard. The, the development from creation to covenant and what we've just seen in chapter 18 with the covenant and justice and then coming to this is all very intentional and very purposeful. So we're going to have to look at it. I want us to see how in a way, yes, in a way, this sin is like any other sin, but also how in other ways this sin is not like other sins. Well, I often say sin is stupid. All sin is stupid. It is. I'm regularly amazed at the stupidity and persistence of my own sin. But look at it here. Look at the persistence of it. Go back to Genesis 19 and look at verse 11. This is really interesting. Genesis 19, verse 11. The Sodomites have made their wicked demand. Lot has responded with a confusing yet tragically realistic mix of an honorable attempt to protect his guests and a wicked attempt to sacrifice his own daughters. Uh, things start to get hot. The crowd is getting riled up, as we have seen lately, tends to happen with crowds. And so the angels have to intervene to save Lot. Verse 11. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. And so some supernatural something, they're struck blind, They've experienced some sort of preliminary minor judgment. You would think the response would be, this isn't good. Or is this connected to that? Maybe I should probably stop that. I should probably turn and leave. No. Instead, they press on and they wear themselves out in their blindness, still attempting to attain their wicked ends. A persistent stubbornness of sin. But don't be too quick to judge. Uh, because you are often too little in your persistent, uh, stubborn stupidity of uh, pursuing your own sin. Listen to Calvin here. I think this is a particularly insightful comment um, for, our, for our times. This is what Calvin comments on this verse. He says, This, however, what we just read, has happened not only once, and not with the men of Sodom only, but it is daily fulfilled in the reprobate, whom Satan fascinates with such madness, that when stricken by the mighty hand of God... They proceed with stupid obstinacy to advance against him. And we need not seek far for an instance of such conduct. We see with what tremendous punishments God visits wandering lusts, and yet the world ceases not. With desperate audacity to rush into the certain destruction which is set before their eyes. Man, we are seeing that today. 
Are we not seeing that uh, in our own country, as our own country and culture persists in rushing into the certain destruction which is set before their eyes? This is merely an example of what all sinners ultimately do. This is the sin of Sodom. The sin is homosexuality. And the judgment is its destruction. Now look over at verse 24. Here's, here's God's judgment. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Skip down to verse 28. And behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that God destroyed the cities of the valley. The wages of sin is death. Scripture is clear that homosexuality is a sin. And Genesis 19 is a very graphic reminder and warning of the end of that sin, but then as a picture and illustration, ultimately, of the end of all sin. And so it, it, it's heavy. It's, it's not popular. But it's here, and it's, and it's God's Word. And so you can reject that, but you, you can reject the Scriptures and deny that they are God's Word and pay no attention then to what they say, and that's under, I understand that response. Um, but what you cannot do is claim to accept the Scriptures and accept the Jesus of the Scriptures and then reject what those Scriptures and what Christ himself clearly affirms, that homosexuality is a sin. This is not a minor point on which reasonable Christians can disagree. You cannot claim to accept Christ and reject his Word. His word is an expression of him and of who he is. To reject his word is to reject him. This is not a minor secondary thing, but it actually cuts to the very core of the gospel. And so let's, let's see that by turning back to Romans 1. I want you to go, we'll spend the rest of our time here in Romans 1, um, page 939. Because I want you to see that this particular sin in the gospel connection, I want you to see what Paul does with this, I would need numerous sermons to do justice to this text. It is such an important passage for numerous reasons. Uh, Romans 1 is the most detailed and most important treatment of homosexuality in the whole Bible in the opening of the most important letter ever written in the whole of history because it is the most detailed explanation of the gospel. And Paul starts off that letter that is all about the good news, first talking all about the bad news. And then he uses homosexuality as a particularly clear illustration of that bad news, which is simply that, that sin separates us from God. Uh, jumping into Romans 1, you see in verse 16, Paul has explained the importance of the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. No gospel, no salvation. Because in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We're trying to bring back this term righteousness. The gospel is about righteousness. Romans is about righteousness. We don't ever talk about righteousness. We're missing something. But we've just seen from a number of our texts that homosexuality is unrighteousness. And we know that Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Which means Romans 1.18, that something else is revealed as well. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Wrath. Romans is all about 
righteousness. And this Roman that is all about righteousness opens with the wrath of the righteous God against the wickedness of unrighteous man. Why? What's the big deal? And that's what I want to establish um, next week. Or go back and listen to Peter's sermon from Isaiah 12 two weeks ago for an excellent, excellent explanation of God's wrath. It is ultimately because of who God is and then who we are. It's that simple. God, perfectly holy. Us, pathetically sinful. Wrath is then the right result. Wrath is the right response to our evil and injustice. We don't want police officers who look the other way and do nothing when they witness a crime. No one wants a judge who fails to convict murderers. God is righteously angry, and he is right to be angry. And it's from beginning to end, all over the Bible. A.W. Pink writes, There are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. And yet how little do we actually talk about them? But we have to deal with them. Why does Romans 1 specifically say God's wrath is revealed? Look at verse 19. It's because everyone knows God. Everybody. God is plain to us through his creation, through our creation in his image, uh, through the law written on our hearts. We all of us have some knowledge of God. There are none innocent because there are none ignorant. We know the truth about God because he has shown it to us. Just look around at his beautiful and glorious creation. It screams his existence. It screams his goodness. It screams his glory. Verse 20, it is clearly perceived. Therefore, we are without excuse. Verse 21, they knew God, but, and here's the problem, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God. And as a result, they get foolishness and darkness. You reject the God who has wisdom and light, you get foolishness and darkness. And here's what the fools did. Verse 23. Catch this. There are three exchanges in these verses. You're going to see the word exchange three times. There are three exchanges that explain our problem and then explain the particular problem of, of homosexuality. Exchange number one. They knew God, but they suppressed that truth. Did not honor him or thank him. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Instead of worshiping God, man chose instead to worship self. And we'll see next week how homosexuality is a particularly graphic form of choosing to worship self. The same and not the other. So man exchanged God for stealth. Instead of being oriented around the God of all glory, man chose to orient himself around himself. That's the first exchange. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up. God gave them over to the lusts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of the bodies. Why did God do this? Exchange number two, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, that is man, self, rather than the Creator. Verse 26, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Like what? Exchange number three. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So exchange of God for man exchange of truth for lies, results in exchange of natural relations 
for unnatural relations. That's homosexuality. Again, we'll look at creation next week and see this. But once you suppress the truth of God as revealed in nature, it's not hard then to repress the truth of self as revealed in nature and then suppress the truth of sex as revealed in nature. And homosexuality is sinful because it is a rejection of the goodness of God and a rejection of the goodness of God's creation and the good and obvious order of that creation. It's not the unforgivable sin, but it is not like every other sin. It is a particularly clear demonstration of the idolatrous impulse in all of our hearts to turn away from the living God and to worship the dead self. And so, verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Right? Homosexuality is what ought not to be done. It is the result of a debased mind. But hold on, just in case you're starting to feel pretty comfortable and good because this is not your sin, so this really has nothing to do with you, therefore you're off the hook and you can feel pretty good about yourself for the rest of the re- week, Keep reading. What else? What ought not to be done? What manner of sin was mankind filled with? Is it just this form? Was it just homosexuality? Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, Faithless, heartless, ruthless. We all of ourselves uh, find ourselves on that list. And thus, none are righteous. Um, no, not one. I didn't write down the end of that verse for some reason. Look, look at the rest of that. I want to get it right. Look at the end of verse 8. Because here's the particular temptation of the church today in our cultural uh, context. Sorry, chapter 1, um, verse 32. Look at the last thing. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Here you go, church. Here's a particularly important warning for us. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Church, that is a great danger um, that we, in not calling sin, sin, we actually then approve and affirm and encourage people in the thing that God says leads to death. And then we find ourselves accountable for approving those things that people practice that lead to death. Church, we need to be very, very careful about that as we feel the pressure of the culture pressing down upon us to submit. The wages of sin is death. This is one of those sins. But we know that we, all of us, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all of us in our various forms and fashions of sinfulness. We have all of us earned and are owed the wages of sin, which is death. Which is why the rest of Romans is so important. Which is why the gospel is so important. Which is why we must speak. Romans 1.17, For in the gospel God's righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. Meaning what? We'll look at Romans 3, verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested. Again, that is revealed apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Again, we've been talking a lot about homosexuality as a sin. But get this. He says there, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. And here's the good news but also our 
justified, that is, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's the gospel. The gospel that is very good news for the sexual sinner. Whatever variety of your sexual sin, the gospel is the only solution. The gospel that starts off by actually telling us the bad news, but the true news that we are all of us separated from God by our sin, that the righteous God requires righteousness to be in relationship with him, and none of us have it. All have sinned, but that the righteous God, here's the gospel, he himself provides the required righteousness for us as a gift in Christ. It is righteousness through faith to all who believe, no matter your background, no matter the nature of your sexual sin. The gospel is that in Christ there is forgiveness and life as those three terrible exchanges of Romans chapter 1 are satisfied by the one wonderful exchange of Romans chapter 3 as Christ comes in to take our place. He exchanges our sin for His righteousness. He takes our sin and gives us His righteousness. And in taking our sin... And in dying in our place for that sin, we are forgiven, we are free, we were dead, now we are alive. And that work that Christ does in our place covers all our sin and changes all our life. I read Romans 6, 9 through 11 earlier. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, including the sexually immoral, including those who practice homosexuality. But I didn't read all of verse 11. Listen to the rest of verse 11. There's this list of all these sins, including homosexuality. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel is for sinners. Such were some of you. Some of the Corinthians were thieves and drunkards, idolaters and homosexuals, but... They were washed. They were sanctified. They were justified in Jesus. Listen, they were those things, but not anymore. That is no longer their identity. Christ is their identity. And brothers and sisters, such were some of you. But those things are no longer your identity. Christ is your identity. Listen, so in this sense... The sin of homosexuality is no different than any other sin in that there is forgiveness offered for it in Jesus Christ if you would just repent and believe. Turn from that sin, forsake that sin, and cling to the Christ who forgives that sin and who forgives all our sin. The gospel is great news for the homosexual sinner and for all sinners. The gospel is the only hope for the homosexual sinner, and for all sinners. So in this sense, we are all the same and completely in need of God's forgiving grace. Because apart from the gospel, which is Christ, Christ is the gospel, apart from him, Genesis 19 is what awaits everyone. The terrible judgment of God in Genesis 19 is there for a purpose. It is simply, it's a taste. It is a foreshadowing of the truly terrible final judgment of God to come as he himself comes to execute his perfect justice in the judgment of all evil and all wickedness. 
So doesn't, don't come away from this thinking, man, I'm, I'm not like them. That's a terrible sin. I'm glad, I'm glad that's not me. No, we come away thinking here, there but for the grace of God, go I. We come away broken because Genesis 19 is the lot of all unrepentant sinners. All of them. We come away thankful because God in Christ has rescued us from such an end. And then we come away moved and motivated to actually speak the Christ that saves. Brothers and sisters, if we actually knew and believed that there is a great judgment awaiting the end of everyone's road, great judgment of which the total annihilation of Sodom and Gomorrah in brimstone and fire is only a shadow, then we would live as we otherwise would live. Uh, The reality of future judgment should affect present action. The reality of future judgment against the sin of homosexuality should affect present thinking on homosexuality. Church, we cannot celebrate what God condemns. We cannot in any way affirm and encourage that which God's word says results in death. We're taking this time because I am not convinced that all of us really think that this is such a big deal. But Genesis 19, I heard a guy talking about God whispering about the sin of homosexuality. Genesis 19 shows us that this is a big deal. This is not God whispering. This is God screaming that this is sin. And this is the result of this sin. And so if this is true, if God's word is true, we do not and we cannot love anyone by hiding this truth and by apologizing for it and by soft-pedaling it. We love people by boldly but compassionately telling them the truth, that the wages of sin is death, and that homosexuality, according to God's word, is a sin. But good news. God is in the business of saving sinners who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The church, how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And, and how can they believe the good news if no one tells them that there's any bad news? Right, church, God's word is clear. Uh, God's judgment is terrible. But God's grace is wonderful. And the church's role is simple. It's speak. It's we, we love by speaking. We love with the gospel. We cannot help sinners until we believe that they are sinners and that the only hope for sinners is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so my simple prayer for this sermon is that our thinking and that our feeling and then our doing will just be more and more shaped by God's true and good and life-giving word. You think, man, why did we have to sit and listen to one 40-minute sermon on, on homosexuality? Listen, you are listening to hours of this almost every single day as the world tells you the exact opposite. We have to combat lies with the truth. And God's word is so clear. Are we going to let God's word speak and be our authority and shape our hearts and our minds? Are we going to be shaped more by God's true and good and life-giving word, especially on these issues in which the word is so, the world is so opposed to this word? Brothers and sisters, stick to the word. As we sang right before our sermon, these are the words of eternal life because they show us our sin and then they show us the solution to that sin in Jesus Christ.
And so, brothers and sisters, we must call the world to repentance, as we must all repent for our sin uh, to be forgiven and turn to Jesus Christ. So we must be willing to call what Scripture calls sin, so that we can then point the world to the wonderfully good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's stop there for now. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer and in this time uh, by asking him uh, to help us and and to work in our hearts and our minds. Let's, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we sometimes uh, don't like your word. Father, forgive us for that. Father, forgive us for our tendency to put ourselves above your word. Uh, Forgive us for all of our tendency to think that we are sometimes wiser than you, maybe sometimes kinder and more compassionate than you. Father, I I ask now simply that you would use your word um, to convince us, Use it to convict us. Father, use it to compel us. Use it, Father, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray now that your word would be what is central and what is clear. I pray that if I have said anything incorrect, Father, I pray that that would fall away. Father, I pray that if I have spoken from pride or arrogance or sin in any way, Father, that you would make that clear to me and that I would repent of that and turn from that. Father, I pray that we would not be ashamed of your word. I pray that we would not apologize for what your word clearly says. And Father, I pray that we would love people by speaking your word and by calling um, sinners to repentance. And Father, we do that because we are so very thankful for the grace that you have given to each and every one of us in rescuing us from our sin and forgiving us and freeing us from the wrath that is to come, from sparing us from the judgment of Genesis 19 because Jesus Christ took that judgment in our place. Father, that should make us very humble and very very joyful and very glad and very desirous to call other sinners to repentance so that they can know the joy and the contentment and the freedom and the forgiveness and the life that we have found in turning from sin and turning to Jesus. So, Father, I ask now that you would do your will with this word. Father, I ask that we could have good and open and frank conversations about these things. Father, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, shape our minds in accordance with your word. We ask now that you would work in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.